welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of a How Did You Do It Real Estate podcast. I am your host, Sayla Prak. Today, we have our special guest, Michael Coffey. Michael has been involved in commercial real estate for almost 20 years in various capacities. Over a 10 years period, Michael applied his problem-solving skills to these transactions to help facilitate loan closings. That experience led Michael transitioned from packaging loans to origination. Only few loans officers have the knowledge that given his history with every facets of the loan process, that would set him apart and makes him uniquely qualified to review loan scenarios for all clients. So welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's very sunny outside, so I'm happy. That's awesome. And where are you located, sunny outside? I'm in Central Oregon. That's awesome. Okay, yeah. so Michael, will you be able to share a little bit more about your background and how did you get started with the real estate? Yeah, so I actually started off in residential real estate but almost 25 years ago. I enjoyed the loan process. I struggled with the residential world. I have always been a numbers person, math and problem solving and that sort of thing. So when I was exposed to the commercial world, it, it just was very attractive to me from that perspective. It made more sense, you know, seeing somebody make a decision on a property because the numbers made sense versus what color it was painted or, you know, some of those other factors that heavily play into residential type properties. So for our listeners, when you're talking about commercial, what type of commercial real estate are we talking about here? And can you give like what types that we should be expecting and investors should expect? Oh, sure. So when we talk about commercial real estate, we're talking about multifamily properties that would be five units and up. So more than five units or more. Then we're also talking about really any other asset class that is income producing. So that would include self-storage, include mobile home parks, single tenant retail space, office buildings, RV parks. There's you know very long list, but really anything that its primary goal is to earn income, that's where we're going to call that commercial. So for an investor, I was a single family investor myself. And mm -hmm. if they wanted to jump into a commercial real estate, what's some of the qualifications or experience or credits or anything that they need in order to jump into that space from a lending standpoint? Sure. Yeah. Now, commercial is very different than residential. It we look more at the property than the borrower. So in residential, obviously, if you have enough income to service that debt, they may not care as much how much the property itself generates an income. 
as long as you can qualify based on your credit and income and that sort of thing. In commercial, we look at it almost the opposite. We care more about what that property can generate and its ability to service that debt. And what we need from the sponsor is decent credit. We're not as particular on the credit as they are in residential. You know, we listen to a story if there's some challenges there. But we also want to see some secondary source of repayment. It doesn't necessarily have to meet a specific guideline. There are many commercial lenders out there that do have some guidelines around global cash flow and that sort of thing. But if the property makes sufficient money to service the debt, the borrowers generally work out fine. And we also have the ability to pull in partners and that to make the file look stronger. Got it. So what is the typical down payment looks like? You know how like when you're buying a single family home, you expect it to put like 20% down or even 3% down based on the loans product. But what about on the commercial side? And, well, and there's the difference there too between multifamily and some of the other uh, commercial asset classes. Multifamily can get a little bit more aggressive in their loan amount. So we typically see there some agency programs out there that will do 20% down. But because we are relying on the property to generate the income to make those payments, sometimes we can't quite go that high. So we need to pull the loan amount back. So we typically are seeing right now in this market and the environment we're in, probably 70 to 75% is fairly typical. As you look out across the country, though, of course, you've got some tighter markets like Phoenix, Portland is one, Seattle, some of the New York, of course, where we can't quite get that aggressive. So probably 65% is reasonable. But in some of the other smaller markets or underserved markets, you know, where cap rates are a lot higher, you can definitely get higher leverage. So is there any other terms and conditions that an investor should be aware of? For example, prepayments or insurance? Yeah, that no, prepayments are good because that is a big difference in between residential and commercial. If somebody's, you know, obviously we're talking about somebody coming out of residential. So a prepay is very typical in commercial. You can negotiate a little bit on what that is, but the typical structure would be what's called a step down. So every year it starts at a percentage, four or 5%, whatever it is. And then each year it will step down lower. The other big difference would be that we don't provide fully amortized loans in the commercial world. So what is typical is a five, seven or 10 year fixed. So it may still amortize over 30 years just to help reduce that payment some, mm-hmm. but they're typically going to want to see a payoff or a refinance within that five to 10 year range. And the reason for that really is that in commercial, people tend to trade properties more often than you would see in a single family residence. So it doesn't make sense to do a 30-year fixed at the rates we would have to charge to have that make sense for a commercial lender. 
when we know that investors probably going to sell or refinance within that you know shorter time period it's much better to get those rates down as far as you can and leave more cash flow for the investor so if you don't mind is it possible to break down what types of loans product that we can expect you mentioned the word agency earlier maybe mm-hmm. you can elaborate a little bit more what's the agency that is and what's other that's available out there Sure. Yeah. So for multifamily, you can agency would be Fannie and Freddie is what we're talking about there. So they have most people are familiar with them on the residential side. They also have a commercial multifamily side as well, and they have their own set of guidelines and the way they like to underwrite deals. They're probably the most aggressive out there because that's all they do. They just do multifamily, so they know that product very well. They have a set standard and guidelines that we follow. They have a program that's pretty nailed down and universal, so we know early on whether that's going to fit that mold or not. Then you can get into there's some HUD financing available as well for much larger projects is where that makes sense. Then there's a whole outfit of banks and credit unions that are out there. Credit unions vary drastically. You've got you know hyper local credit unions that are you know in certain cities or areas, and then you have national credit unions that will lend anywhere in the country. So they have their own sets of guidelines. They tend to look pretty hard at global cash flow. And then the banks themselves, and that's where you see the largest variety of programs. Each bank, they have their own appetite. You know, they have their own experiences with certain loan types or product types, asset classes that they have, and they may or may not like those, or they fall in and out of favor. So if they've done a lot of multifamily lending, they may decide, hey, we need to do more. Retail, or we need to do more, you know, self storage so that we can balance our portfolio. Banks have to answer, you know, government regulators, so they have some rules they have to follow as well. Um, Got it. Yeah. So, Michael, how the process would look like? Let's say I'm myself, and uh, just a hypothetically, if I never actually purchased a multifamily before, and I identify a 24 units here in Southern California, you know, asking for seven million dollars, which is about a little bit over three hundred thousand dollars per door. How the process would look like? How do I get a loan for that? And you know, what about down payment? Let's say I don't have enough down payment. How would a typical someone like myself make it happen? From your standpoint, sure. I think the first step in that would be to look at the listing flyer or the what's called the offering memorandum that's put out on that property. Assuming it's listed, mm-hmm. we would want to look at those numbers, and we would develop a cash flow model for that. And you probably, if you're interested in the property, you probably have already developed your own idea of where you think that cash flow will be. I would do it as well, but from a lender's perspective, so we can see okay, how would a typical lender look at this property? What are they using for income? What would they use for expenses? And get an idea of what kind of leverage we could put 
on that property. And then that would tell you what you need for your down payment. So let's say for this particular property, we can get to 70% loan to value. So you've got 30% that you've got to come up with. A lot of folks now, and the lenders really have come a long way, especially mm-hmm. in this would still be a small balance type program, kind of a smaller loan for commercial. Lenders have come a long way in accepting like syndication investor funds jumping in as part of the equity. So you could go out and you could raise that equity if you wanted on your own. You could crowdsource as long as you as the, what we would call the key principal or the one signing on the loan, Mm -hmm. as long as you meet guidelines, where the down payment ends up coming from isn't as big of a an issue for our land, you know, in residential, they would want to see bank statements and mm-hmm. source, you know, really see that if you've already raised the cash and you have it, then you go out and find a project. We're going to see it there. And again, as long as you meet requirements for net worth and liquidity reserves and that sort of thing, that'll be just fine. So for typical for the key principle, you mentioned about net worth and liquidity. Is this, uh, let's say, $7 million property, how much net worth do we need? And what is the liquidity from the key principle do we need? Sure. Again, a kind of a standard look at it. Each lender's, again, it's a little bit different, but we would want to see a one-to-one net worth requirement. So as long as your net worth is over seven, actually it's to the loan amount. So whatever that loan amount is, as long as you have post-closing net worth of that, we're good. If you own quite a few houses and you have money in the bank, you have retirement, you know, typically we're going to get there pretty easily. It's, it's rare that that is an issue. The bigger issue, of course, is liquidity. Cash is always king. So they're going to want to see, I've seen it as low as six months of payments that you would have mm-hmm. in liquid reserve. I've seen some as as high as a year. They'd want to see a whole year. And if you've got a larger portfolio of properties, they might want you to have a little bit more in reserve just under the idea, hey, if you get a lot of repair bills, we need to make sure that that doesn't drain all of your liquidity so that you're cash strapped. Got it. Got it. Thank you so much for going through the details of these. So another question for you, you mentioned that the property has to be able to pay for itself, right? From a cash flows perspective, let's say we've got a properties and it can pay off the expense and a mortgage, barely cash flowing. What is the minimum requirement to get a loan? Sure. Yeah, so we're going to, the bank will calculate income and typically they're going to use the current in-place income that's there. Then they're going to develop some expenses and it may or may not be what you are going to pay. So, but they will come up with a kind of a market analysis, looking at the historicals, what typical management would be, for example, Mm -hmm and develop an NOI that they feel comfortable with. Once they have that net operating income, then they're going to subtract out their annual debt service or their annual payments. What they want to see left over is about 20 to 25% of that NOI left for you. 
as an investor. If, If you get under that, it gets very skinny and difficult to make the deals work. Obviously, if you have more than that, it makes the deal much simpler and banks will look on those a lot more favorably. Thank you. And Michael, you say one word that caught my attention was the word market. So I wanted to refer to you from a lending market perspective, especially at the current environment. Can you provide some insight of what do you see currently and what are some of the challenges that an investor can avoid or prepare themselves so that they can have a successful getting a loan? Sure. Yeah, I think what's out in the marketplace right now amongst the capital sources really is fear, fear of the unknown. We don't really know where the economy's headed in general. You know, inflation, we don't know what the Fed's going to do. We don't know where the employment numbers are going to fall. And then all of the other, you know, political and, you know, world issues going on it does create some uncertainty. So I think as an investor looking at deals, I think planning on the conservative is probably a good, safe thing. What you don't want to do is get into a deal thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to get 75% loan to value on the leverage and it's going to be, you know, four and a half percent, you know, on the rate and then get deep into it. Maybe you've got money out in earnest money, you've got, you paid an inspector, you've started outlaying cash on this before closing and then come back and the bank's like, hey, we're going to be at, you know, five and a half percent. We can only get you 65% leverage. So I think going in with a realistic view of where the market is, is going to help you, you know, hit your expectations. I would also say because the debt piece is so important and critical to these deals nowadays that you get involved with your lender or your broker, whoever you're using to provide your debt as early as possible. Get them looking at those numbers, get them looking at the deal and just asking them, hey, can you give me a quick idea of what you could do on this? For me, I encourage all of my clients to call me as soon as they find something. Send me that OM. It takes me 10 or 15 minutes to breeze through it and can give you a real good idea of what kind of a leverage we could get on that property. And also possibly a like an estimate of the interest rate. Exactly. Yeah, I can give you a range of where rates are falling at that particular time. And then just based on the cash flow of it, what those lenders could do leverage wise. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. 
Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Yeah. Wow, that's really great. And what do you think in the next six to 12 months with the current environment? From your perspective, you know, like what would you say about the lending environment in the next six to 12 months? I think it's going to continue to get a bit more conservative. I think some of that is warranted. I think it's really interesting because we look at the whole country. It's so different. There's all these pockets. Portland's one. I know California is one as well. There's some spots back east where they just simply don't have enough units. They don't have enough supply to satisfy the demand. So that's going to drive rents up. You know, it's going to drive cap rates down. Whereas there's other parts of the country where it's the opposite. You know, they have a lot of empty units and rents are falling. Uh, if we look at some of the other asset classes, uh, I mean, self-storage is always good, but, you know, you look at some of the retail, especially office space, there's so much uh, vacant space and we really don't know what's going to happen with office coming up over the next year or two. So I think lenders are rightly conservative on those types of assets to say, hey, we need to apply some additional underwriting guidelines to this to make sure that when that loan comes due in you know, five, seven years, you're going to be able to pay us back. You know, you're going to be able to get a refinance or you're going to be able to sell it at a high enough price to pay us back. I think that's fair. But I think there are markets where lenders need to be a little bit more aware of what's there and how those supply and demand metrics are working. I mean, they're just not building units up here in Portland. So, but we have a lot of people moving here. So Mm -hmm. there's always going to be a demand for more apartments and that's going to keep the prices high. So you mentioned about having enough reserves and very conservative in your underwriting, especially now. Are there any reserves that you feel that it has to be on the underwriting and making sure that that's on there to make the lender feel more secure? Yeah, it's, and I hate sounding squishy in my answers, but it does varies because if I have two investors and they both have $10 million in assets, one of them's leveraged at 70% and the other one's leveraged at 50%. I actually saw one the other day where he was leveraged at 30%. Their reserve requirements are probably going to be different on those two scenarios because the guy that's only at 30 or 50%, he can go out and raise capital just by selling a property or getting a line of credit. Or I mean, there's all sorts of ways he could refinance his properties and it's not going to hurt him if he was desperate for cash. Whereas the guy at 70, he doesn't have as many options. So they might want to see more liquid reserves for him. It also matters to where that liquidity is. You know, if if it's in crypto, they might be a little concerned, right? Mm Because we don't know what's going to happen there. But if it's in a retirement and he's, you know, this investor's over age, over 65, and he can tap that, great, that's usable. Fits in the stock market. Okay, let's take 65% of that. We'll use that as a reserve 
Uh, but if he's got it all in cash or they're in CDs or or something where it's readily available, that's going to be looked at more favorably. So you mentioned if it's the liquidity is inside like a retirement account or IOA, and those can be counted as a liquidity as well? Depending <laughs> on the lender, yes. Like agency, we talked earlier about Fannie and Freddie Mac. They will not count retirement mm-hmm. at all in their analysis. Mm-hmm. A lot of lenders, though, credit unions and banks specifically, they will use retirement but they will discount it. So mm-hmm. assuming, let's say you cashed out your retirement, you would get penalized, right? right? You'd get a penalty, plus you would get taxed on it. Correct. So they'll kind of do a quick, and they usually have a standard that they use, like we'll use 50% of your retirement or you know some such thing. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And you also mentioned about line of credit. So you're talking about, oh, you can actually go and sell a properties or get a line of credit to do the down payment. So line of credit can be used as a liquidities and or can be used for down payment on a commercial property? Yes, they can. Again, different banks feel differently. I've got some lenders who, hey, we don't care where it comes from. As long as we can underwrite this new debt, into mm-hmm. his global picture, and it still makes sense, where we don't care. I have others, though, that no, we don't want it borrowed. We need it to be cash. So right. if somebody comes to me, and I'm actually working on a purchase transaction now where he's getting a line of credit on a single family that he owns to use as his down payment. Mm-hmm. So when we had our initial discussions, I knew that's where it was coming from. So what we did is when we went out to market with this loan Mm -hmm. is we represented to the lenders that that loan was already in place and that cash was already in the bank. That way they had a full picture of what it will be at closing. So we're not lying or we're not misrepresenting that it was borrowed against this property, right? That makes sense. Um, But then we also you need to make sure that that particular lender isn't going to care that when they get bank statements that they see this deposit on there, that we're clear up front about where that's coming from. That makes sense. That's very important that an investor would have to work with the correct loan originator or, you know, like a correct lenders because, you know, like yourself, your role is very important. You cannot emphasize how important a lender is in this business. They are basically the best partner because basically as an investor, we only put a small chunk of down payment, but the rest of it, it's coming from the lender. So making it's, sure... It's all debt, yeah. Yeah, so making sure that you're working with the right person and coming up with the right solution to get the best rate and terms that would help, you know, like uh, closing more deals. That's yeah. for sure. And I would say that you said rate and terms. I would say the terms honestly are more important than the rate itself mm-hmm. because the terms include how long is it fixed for? What's the prepayment penalty? You know, what kind of loan to value are we getting? You know, how are they going to underwrite this property or this borrower? Those things play into because commercial, obviously, you're making cash flow. But you can also make money on the exit, right? When you sell that property. 
Correct. And if, or if you have investors that have jumped in on this and you want to pay them off in year three, and then you want to hold it by yourself going forward, you know, knowing and structuring the deal that would allow for that. If you don't mesh that stuff out up front, you end up getting caught because we talked about prepays earlier. You know, you do, oh, a 10-year fix. That's what my bank is offering me. And it's got this prepay. But, you know, in the back of your head, you're like, well, I'm going to sell it in year five. But now you've got a prepay of four or 5%. How much better would it have been to go with even a slightly higher rate, but have no prepay or have a prepay that drops off after four years, which then allows you to exit without any penalty? So that's, I view my job as probably the, you know, the most critical part of my job is interviewing investors up front and clarifying those exact issues and finding out all those different factors so that we can target lenders that are going to fit that model that you have. Thank you for that, Michael. And we're talking about interest rate, in your opinion and what you're seeing Interest rate has gone up dramatically this year. What do you see in the future? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but we value your opinion. You're doing this every day. Do you think that the interest rate will continue to go up or would there a chance that it's going to soften a little bit? I think because I've, again, I've been around for a while, you know, having watched spreads and different indexes They'll probably go through seasons where they're just bumping along, and then we're going to have events that are going to force them to edge up. It's hard to foresee a scenario where they come down. They might decelerate, and so it feels, you know, and you could like catch it on a certain day where it happened to be down. We've had a couple of those days on the 10-year, if you watch it closely, where you could lock in at a super low rate, but that's very, very difficult. And it requires some luck, honestly. I think in general, we just have to assume they're going to go up to a point at which everything stabilizes. And then I think they'll bump along there. It's so hard to predict, as you said, no one's crystal ball is is that clear to know. The market is so much more complicated these days than it was even 10 years ago. So all those factors that play into what banks are charging or where the rates are, where the indexes are, it's very hard to tell. But again, with that mindset of maybe thinking more conservatively, I think the assumption should be they will go up over time. And obviously, there's a ceiling somewhere, right? So they're not just going to keep going up forever. Yeah. That makes sense. That's really a great information, and that's why I wanted to ask for your opinion. I do see uh, numbers of deals coming in on my desk, and with some of the underwritings where they were using bridge loans and then projected it's going to be refinancing in year two or year three, while bridge loans currently, you know, like seven or eight percent, but they projected that they can refinance to the agency debt, but the interest rate is going to be like four and a half or five or something like that during the refinance. So it 
really based on the risk factors, right? As an investor myself, you know, does it make sense or not make sense? So your opinions, you know, you doing this every day, looking at loans every day is very, very valuable. And thank you for so much for sharing that information. Oh, absolutely. Glad to help. So Michael, why do you like what you do so much every day? Oh, well, I think, yeah, I mentioned earlier, I've always enjoyed numbers and that sort of thing. But I think this is going to sound a little bit odd, but I've always enjoyed mystery stories. Sherlock Holmes, I grew up on and different, yeah, where there's, you know, mysteries and the crime needs to be solved. I don't know. I've always been drawn to that. And I somewhat view my job similar to that. I have an investor who's trying to accomplish a goal. I have a property that does, you know, performs a certain way. How do I match up what their expectations are and what we can do, you know, in the market? You know, can I find a lender that can do what he needs it to do? And I view that almost like a puzzle or a mystery, like, you know, that has to be solved. So I've often wondered if that's, been the draw of this for me in doing the debt side. I think that's probably the most accurate. I'm sure there's lots of other things in my personality, if you dive into my personality that feed into my job, but I enjoy it. I wake up in the morning and, you know, I love problem solving and commercial deals are infinitely more fraught with problems that can come up. Than residential, it's a lot more intricate and detailed. And so I love diving into those. Awesome. Michael, so just another question, possibly like a closing question. So to be successful in the current commercial investment in the current market, you're talking about having enough reserves, having enough a proper debt and leverage, but in general, if you have to give one more advice or recommendations to our investor or an investor, what would that be so that they can be successful for the end of the year of 2022 or the next 2023? Yeah, I would say patience. The market hasn't quite caught up with where rates have gone. Investors have certainly changed their expectations, but I don't know if many sellers have yet. I think they're still being fairly aggressive, in my opinion, which I, I don't blame them. If they can get that, great. But as an individual investor, I would say just being patient, waiting for that right deal to come along that makes the most sense for you. This is a money-making adventure we're on, right? This is not our total life. So to go stretch yourself on a deal and stress out your family and yourself for one deal probably isn't in the whole picture worth it. You're much better off being, like I said, a little bit more conservative. Be patient, wait for that right property to come along because when you find it and you can execute your plan, your business plan, uh, it's super fulfilling and it's less risky for your portfolio. So I would just say exercise patience and look at as many deals as you can. You know, look at them, learn about them, learn how the numbers play, and then, you know, learn how to say no and walk away from those that don't make sense. 
I cannot agree more than this. I mean, you know, like looking at the deal also making sure, you know, like be patient. If you try to make the deal works, most likely it doesn't work. Yeah. And stick to your underwriting principle. If you're going to have to adjust your principle and then adjust your basis just to make a deal work, it most likely is not going to work. Not just for yourself or for as an investor, but most likely chances are it's not going to work, you know, with the lenders either. So yeah. just be patient. I agree totally 100%. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I really appreciate you talking to us and, you know, like providing valuable insights about the market, about the lending industry, you know, for the uh, commercial real estate. So if our listener wanted to find out more about you and what your company does and your service, where can they go? My LinkedIn page is probably the best place. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm actually posting a series of articles about some of these issues that we encounter in commercial financing and how to overcome them. So there's a lot of good educational materials on there. That would be linkedin.com. And then my page is michael-coffee is where you can find me on there or just search and I'm sure I'll pop up. And then you can also go to stacksource.com as well to learn about our company and what we do. You can also email me at michael.coffee at stacksource.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much again for coming on to the show today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.